0: I would like to think of myself as a citizen of the world. So when people like Theresa May say that a citizen of the world has no sense of belonging, that hurts me because I know that's not true.
1: Hello and welcome to Confessions. My name is Giles Fraser And this is the podcast where we talk to really interesting people and uh, I get to chat to them about life, the universe and everything. And uh, it's my pleasure today to talk to the utterly brilliant Elif Shafak, who is a novelist, an academic, a feminist and, well, a brilliant person. (laughs) And uh, I'm delighted to have this opportunity to sit down and talk with you. I I have to tell you, Elif, I've just spent... Uh, a few hours, sitting in the sunshine and finishing your latest book. And I could have been in Istanbul with the sunshine on my face. It was just beautiful. Thank Thank, you. (laughs) Thank you. That
0: means so much to me. Thank you.
1: (laughs) So what we do is, before we get on to your novels and that sort of vocation, I guess, as a novelist, perhaps we could just say something about your backstory and where you come from and where you were born and Mm. something about your parents and how you were brought up. Yeah. Paint yeah. me a picture.
0: <laughs> well, I was born in France, actually. I was born in Strasbourg. And at the time, my father, he was um, he's, he was a scholar. He was an academic. And he was there for his PhD in, in philosophy. Uh-huh. And my mom, she was very young when she got married. And thinking that love was enough, she had dropped out of university. Which was a huge mistake, of course. So the first house that I was brought into was, uh, at least in my memory, in my imagination too, it's full of immigrants, students, leftist students reading Althusser, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, maybe not so much Simone de Beauvoir, but thinking of the revolution, dreaming of the revolution. So it was that kind of an environment, smoking, lots of cigarettes, gouloirs. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was a very cosmopolitan environment. But afterwards, my parents' marriage came to an end. They went separate ways and my father stayed in France. He got married again and my mother brought me to Turkey, to Ankara with her.
1: And your mother was Turkish. Yes, and, she is Turkish. And your father?
0: He's Turkish as well, right, although right. his second marriage, he married uh, a French lady. So my half brothers are half Turkish and half I French. See, yeah. um, so when we came back to Turkey, of course, from my mom, it was homeland, How motherland.
1: How when you came back
0: to Turkey? I hadn't started primary school yet. Oh, okay, so really young. Really young. And um, my of course, for her, it was home. For me, it was a new country, Turkey. And we came to a very, very conservative neighborhood, very patriarchal neighborhood in the middle of Ankara. This was my maternal grandmother's environment. Uh, and and so from that moment onwards, I was raised by two women. But of course, when my mom came back to Turkey, because she had dropped out of university. She had no diploma, no career, no choices in life. And she was a young divorcee now. And in a very patriarchal environment, a young divorcee is regarded as a threat, almost. And immediately they want to marry her off, usually to someone older. And it was my grandmother who intervened and said, no, my daughter should go back to university. She should graduate. She should have choices in life. You know, she should have a career. She can always get married again if she wants to but then it will be a choice it won't be an obligation so that was amazing you know and when people said yes but she has a child to take care of my grandmother said I will raise my granddaughter until the day her mother is ready so I was raised by my grandmother until the age I was 10 Um, And my mother, in the meantime, she went back to university. She graduated with flying colors. First, she became a teacher and then she became a diplomat. Ah. So she and I have traveled a lot after I was 10 years old. We went to Madrid. But I'm mentioning this for two reasons, primarily because the solidarity between these two women who are very different personalities. My mom is very westernized, secular, modern, rational, urban My grandma pretty much the opposite, very Eastern, you might say very spiritual, irrational, less educated, very wise in her own way. She was a very strong personality and she did support other women. So that solidarity between them left a huge impact on me and I've seen the impact of that going beyond generations and i think second reason why i'm mentioning is because i always felt a bit like an outsider yeah. in every yeah. place i've been
1: there's so many polarities that you've just referenced already yeah. male and female yeah. left and yeah. and conservative western
0: east western
1: yeah. eastern yeah. Yeah. mystical yeah. secular and yeah, so true. forth that's a, and caught between true. all of those yeah. do your sympathies sort of span try and span a lot of those uh polarities? I
0: think I love questioning dualities. So there's a part of me that's always interested in transcending dualities politically as well um, and I think I want to see if there's a third way or a fifth way or a 99th way, I don't know. But Third
1: way sounds like Tony <laughs> Blair in this country. Well, well okay, careful, not, not in that sense, not in that <laughs>
0: sense <laughs> but all I'm trying to say is I don't like these mutually exclusive polarizations, and I don't think as humanity we've been benefiting from that but basically I think I don't like certainty so people on each side can have a lot of certainty. I like I, I like confusion more. I have always felt close to agnostics, you know, people who don't claim to know the answer, and there's there's room for a dialectics of faith and doubt, you know, of different things. I like that.
1: Yes, that, that Salman Rushdie in that wonderful little little pamphlet is nothing sacred. I remember. I don't know if mm. you know that little pamphlet. Mm. He's mm. got he's got a fantastic description of the sort of mm. uh, of the novelists. Um, well, I said vocation, but it's something like where this this is the place where all different voices can be heard absolutely. where there's not one certainty that trump's other certainties absolutely and it's and it's i mean you know you 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 have the perfect novelist's backstory you <laughs> <see>.
0: <laughs> i hope so and i and i sincerely believe in this because you should always doubt you know doubt is our friend i think if we don't have doubt in life we end up with dogmas and dogmas are incredibly dangerous so as a writer particularly when you're writing a novel, because the novel is such a democratic space. I don't think authors control that space. So many times this happened to me, even if I want to keep a character on the sidelines, she would disobey, you know, she would have her own journey. And as a writer, you have to respect that, follow that. So the the art of storytelling has its own flow, has its own democratic space. And I very much believe in that you need a plurality, a multiplicity of voices, that's where I feel plural myself, and that's where I feel free when I'm writing a novel.
1: When did the... Uh, so you, 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 growing up in in Ankara, yeah. um, is, is storytelling something that comes to you quite early on?
0: In a way, yes, because I thought life was very boring, to be honest. I was an only child, a very solitary child, and I thought nothing interesting was happening. But that said, my grandmother's house was full of magic and superstitions. People would come to her. She was a healer in her own way. And I've seen all of that, lots of folk tales, oral stories of the Middle East. So there's a part of me that's tuned into that world. But I must maybe also tell you that I'm talking about late 1970s in Turkey. This is a time of extreme political violence. People would be gunned down. Uh, gunned down on the streets almost every day, there would be bombs exploding. Um, So I, I remember sitting by the window and thinking about what was going on outside the window, but also being interested in what was happening inside the house. And maybe there's still that kind of curiosity in my work. I am interested in politics. I do ask political questions. And frankly, I think if you happen to be a writer from wounded democracies, such as Turkey, Nigeria, Pakistan, Egypt, Venezuela, imagine the list is so long, Mm -hmm. you don't have the luxury of being non-political. So there's a part of me that's always interested in what is happening outside the window. But I've never lost my perhaps... Call it respect or curiosity for that oral culture that unfortunately sometimes in my motherland, novelists have looked down upon.
1: It's interesting when you talk about yourself as a nomad Mm. and yet having just enjoyed one of your novels, there is a very strong sense of place in them. The smells that are conjured up, food, um, a number of different things root you in, in place and you have a... It's clear the way in which you obviously you write politically as well, but there's a love of place yeah. in in your. Is that is that a is that a place that you've never? Is that a sort of nostalgia for place? Because in a way, as a nomad, place is something, yeah. you know. You, it, it, you know, you've been in
0: many places. Right. It's not a nostalgia because I'm not over romanticizing the past. Even when I write about Turkish history, I'm very critical. So I want to be able to talk about the beauties, but also the atrocities, which is a very difficult yeah. you know, thing to do in Turkey, to be honest. But um, I, I really liked what you said, I do have a strong sense of place. And I think this is what nationalists do not get. Because for them, everything is either or, you know, it's just two choices and nothing else. Whereas in life, I think we can have multiple belongings. That is much closer to my heart. So when I look at myself and at my own writing, it's very clear that there's a big attachment to Istanbul. There's a part of me that loves Istanbul. And I I think I will always carry Istanbul with me wherever I go. But I'm equally attached to the Aegean, the Balkans. Put me next to a Bosnian or Romanian or Bulgarian or Greek author. I have so much in common. Equally, I have so many elements in my soul from the Middle East. Again, I feel very attached to Lebanon. Iraq, Iran, Syria, you name it. But then I'm a European by birth and the values that I share and I uphold. And over the years, I've become a Londoner. I've become a British citizen. I do care about this country. I feel very free in this country. And there's a part of me that appreciates that enormously. But at the same time, I would like to think of myself as a citizen of the world. So when people like Theresa May, Say that a citizen of the world has no sense of belonging, that hurts me because I know that's not true.
1: Is there a sense in which, with these sort of multiple loves of place, uh, and I suppose particularly East and West, that you see part of your role, if that's not too strong a word, as translating one to the other, Um, you know, sort of trying to explain East to the West and the West to the East? Is there part of that in your?
0: M- maybe but i don't i you know i don't th- write with a sense of mission uh, i Earlier, I said I, really? I write political questions, yeah. right? But I don't like to give answers. And I don't think that's something writers should be doing. For us, the main thing is to ask questions and to open up spaces, you know, open spaces where a diversity of voices can be heard, but always leave the answers to the reader. So I don't like it when writers try to teach something or preach. Actually, I really find that very off-putting. Also, there's a Tradition in Turkey that goes all the way back to Ottoman Empire we call it father novelists the earlier novelists in Turkey were men who thought they had a mission to educate their readers. So they always saw their readers as their sons, sons in need of guidance. And I don't like that hierarchical approach. The author is not somewhere above and we're not above our texts either. We create the meaning together. And over the years, I've seen this again and again. You can give the same book to a couple, husband and wife. They will read it, but they will read it in different ways because each person's reading is is unique you know we bring as readers we bring our gaze into the story so the reading the reader is not a passive being and for me that's very important we need to understand that we create the meaning all of us together the writer the reader and the story there's a but there triangle a,
1: but there is a there is a sort of buried sort of didactic intent there which is to sort of deconstruct the yeah. power dynamic of patriarchal type yeah. of you know,
0: yeah.
1: ways in which novels have been done before. I mean, this is this is a sort of buried agenda, isn't there?
0: Well, that, that is, yes, because I think I've always been more interested in the periphery rather than the centre. Yes. So there's a part of me that deliberately wants to bring the periphery to the centre. Whoever, you know, a- anyone who has felt like the other for whatever reason... There's a part of me that sympathizes with that person. I want to be able to remember what has been forgotten by official narrative in Turkey. I want to be able to give at least a little bit more voice to people who have been voiceless, disempowered, forgotten. So I think in my books, all of my books, minorities have always played an important role. And when I say minorities, cultural, sexual, ethnic minorities, um, because we're, we're a society that doesn't celebrate diversity in Turkey. And I think as a novelist, of course, I'm interested in stories, but I'm equally interested in silences. Oh. So that means I'm interested in taboos as well. And I want to be able to question political taboos, cultural taboos, sexual taboos. I want to be able to talk about these issues.
1: Well, we'll come to some of those silences right. in, um, in Turkey and other places in, right. in a moment. But let's just tell that. Let's just keep on going with the story of you just for for sure. a moment. So. Your, your mum gets posted as a diplomat yeah. back to the to Madrid. To Madrid. Yeah. So you go to Spain, presumably you start to learn Spanish. Exactly. And you go to school in Spanish. Exactly. So you're thinking in lots of different languages already. French, yeah. presumably, and then Turkish and... And now Spanish.
0: Yeah, my French abandoned me. I, I can't speak French, but I did learn Spanish, and then over the years, I mean, at the same time, actually, English became my third language. And the fascinating thing is, I felt very much at home. Inside this language, I started writing in English, but I would always keep it to myself. Uh, and to me, language—you
1: started ha- writing in English.
0: I started writing poems in English, stories in that English. That was your
1: first writing language, was it?
0: My first writing language was Turkish. Oh, she writes. Yeah, I, I did start ri- No, no, I, I did start writing at an early age, preci- mostly because I, w- I really thought life was boring. Uh, the desire to become an established author came to me in my early twenties, but when I was in Madrid, so around the time I'm. 10, 11 years old, I started writing in English as well. And I was reading extensively in English, and I love this language. So maybe that bond, the connection that I feel with the English language goes all the way back to my teenage years. That said, English to me is an acquired language. Like many, many millions of immigrants, outsiders, latecomers, I do know that there's a gap between the mind and the tongue when you are an outsider speaking another language. And that can be very intimidating. Because I think as immigrants, we always want to say more, but we can't. You always want to crack better jokes, but there's a part of you that can't. So that gap can be intimidating, but I also think it can be inspiring. It can push you to pay more attention to language, to words that can't be translated from one language to another, maybe to appreciate it more and you don't take it for granted. Uh,
1: languages open up a different sort of world to you, yeah. almost like a world that's not available yeah. in in English. I, I wonder if that's... I wonder if there are sort of things that you can write in Turkish mm. and there are sorts of things that you can write in English mm. that are difficult to write in the other language. Does that make sense?
0: That, that makes a lot of sense. And actually, I think it's very true. Sometimes we find certain things much easier to express in another language, even if we're not bilingual or multilingual by you know birth. And um, So, for instance, when I l- look at my work, if I'm writing about melancholy, sadness, sorrow, longing, I find these things much easier to express in Turkish. But when it comes to humour, which is very important to me, and also irony in particular, uh, maybe satire too, I find it much easier to express them in English. But maybe that's a cultural difference, not only a linguistic one.
1: So so somehow the language has infused within it a whole sort of historical, cultural um, worldview that you draw upon when you...
0: Yeah, well, jokingly, I think we there are two things that we Turks don't do very well. One is optimism. Uh, and the second thing we don't do very well is irony. Uh, I also think, actually, if you open a map of Europe, if you trace the river Danube, the blue Danube, uh, with your finger, as you move from Germany towards the Black Sea the level of optimism drops oh, continually. Is that, is that right? <laughs> that's what my 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 observation so by the time you reach bulgaria romania black sea turkey we're not very optimistic you know as, is, as that, is that because
1: you've moved from power to powerlessness
0: That, also history um the silences of history there's history in such lands is quite heavy you know it is not over yet i think the past continues to live in the present time Um, and, And so I don't see much optimism. But as I said, to me, what is interesting is this dialectics of humor and sorrow. So maybe I love that. I love to when I write about sorrow, there's a part of me that wants to also remember humor, not the kind of humor that makes fun of people, the, the kind of humor that's compassionate. I like that kind of humor very much. And honestly, I don't think it's a coincidence that countries that have lost their democracy also lose their space, the space for humor, you know, the public space for humor is also lost. Humor is incredibly important for a democracy to be able to laugh, you know, together at, our, at ourselves, sometimes at our past at the people in power, I find that very healthy.
1: Do you think we're losing our sense of humor in this country at the moment? Yes,
0: we. unfortunately. I mean, when I came to the UK about more than 10 years ago now, I used to think the British people are so calm when they talk politics. And I no, no longer feel that way. You know, that calmness has gone, that ability. Of course, it's still there. Humor is still very important in the public space. But nonetheless, I think that political language has changed in this country. Maybe it's good that it became more emotional. But at the at the same time it became more more and more polarized that worries me there is a reason why all populist demagogues benefit from polarization there's a reason why they love to divide societies between us versus them Um, And I think as progressive minded people, we need to find ways in which to transcend those dualities and to go beyond our echo chambers. I don't see that happening enough today. And I think Brexit did really break lots of things in this country.
1: You talk about um, the silences. And I mean, one of the things that, you know, that's happened to you in your career as a novelist Mm. is that, you know, you've paid something of quite a cost for Mm. having explored something of those silences mm-hmm. and i 'm uh, i 've just read the bastard of Istanbul mm-hmm. where you um, you talk about the um, Armenian genocide mm-hmm. and that 's one of those subjects that 's extremely difficult to talk about in yeah. Turkey and extremely you know touchy subject and you go straight in there and you know it 's to t- t- quite some considerable cost
0: yeah we of course in Turkey we have a very rich um, history. And it's a very complex country. It's a very multi-layered country. And I always think that the people are ahead of their governments. So I'm very critical of the government, but at the same time appreciative of the civil society and the complexities of the Turkish society. But that said, I think we're also a country of collective amnesia. Because of the way we are raised, because of the official narrative that we learn at school. Um, but please don't get me wrong. I think every nation state has its own official version of history. Yeah. This is the same whether you go to Russia or France or, or Germany or Israel. But here's the difference. The difference between a democratic state or a democratic nation and a non-democratic one is that in a, where there is democracy, if you walk into a bookstore, you can easily find books that question official history. You can easily come across articles, voices, narratives that say, wait a minute, you forgot to include my story. What about, you know, my ancestor's story? You know, what happened to them? So there's more room for plurality. In a country that has lost its democracy, the narrative is very much controlled, top down. And so many people sincerely know nothing about their pasts. 1915, the massacres, deportations, it's a big taboo in Turkey. We still can't talk about it. I wrote a novel called The Bastard of Istanbul, which tells the story of a Turkish family and an Armenian-American family, but tells the story through the eyes of women, generations of women. And in my opinion, it's a story that deals with amnesia and memory. You know, because I've met lots of young Armenians who had very old memories. I've met many young Turkish people who had no memories of the past. So there was a part of me that wanted to be able to talk about this. When the book came out, I was put on trial for insulting Turkishness under Article 301. That's extraordinary. That's a law. It is a law, even though nobody knows what it means, You know, and therefore it can be interpreted and misinterpreted in different ways. Article 301 in Turkish constitution has been used against many scholars, historians, journalists many times. But this was the first time it was used against a work of fiction. And as a result, my Turkish lawyer had to defend my Armenian fictional characters in the courtroom because the words of fictional characters had been taken out of the text and used as evidence to prove that I was insulting Turkishness. So it was very surreal the whole thing. Um, there were groups, ultranationalist groups on the streets. This madness went on for about a year, you know, spitting up my pictures, uh, burning EU flags, because in their minds, if you question official history, you must be a pawn of Western imperial powers.
1: And the EU was there? And
0: the EU was that in their mind, yeah. for Turkish ultranationalists. nationalists um, And after a year, I was acquitted, but even then I had to live with a bodyguard for about uh, a year and a half for about 2 years afterwards.
1: So but the Turkish legal system did in the end acquit you?
0: Yes, the courts okay. did in the end acquit me and and my fictional characters too. <laughs> That's
1: extraordinary <laughs> that fictional characters could be on trial. Yeah. That's just yeah. bizarre, isn't yeah. it? Of course. I I I spent some time a couple of years ago um in Damascus with mm. some churches in Damascus and I mm. went to I went to one of the churches in Damascus and uh uh, I couldn't quite work out what this uh, mural was at the at the, uh, the front. It was an incredibly violent mural. And this was um, Syrian Orthodox church that actually had been populated by Christians who'd, who'd come out of Turkey in the Armenian Genocide and their memory was burning bright. Yes,
0: and so many of them died in the desert as well, <coughs> Darzor, in, so, yeah. in the Syrian deserts with hunger. So there's a lot we need to talk about. Um, and I think memory is a responsibility, not in order to get stuck in the past, but to first of all, recognize the past. Um, and to to be able to come together, hopefully to learn from the past and never ever make the same mistakes. Countries with very poor memory can repeat the same mistakes again and again. And it's worrying me today, the rise of nationalism, tribalism, this language of jingoism, none of that is innocent. We have known as world citizens where that kind of language takes us into which tunnels and i'm worried about um critical of all all kinds of nationalism so i'm a nationalist so
1: (laughs) great (laughs) so so i'm 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 happy for you to to have a go at me and i suppose my nationalism i mean i'm a soft nationalist Mm -hmm. but my um my nationalism probably revolves around a sense of place as terribly important capitalism has disrupted place for, for many people and actually it's all right for broadly wealthy people to jet around the world but actually for for many people for poorer people it's actually place and community that sustains them and destroying place and community yeah. and a sense of our common
0: yeah.
1: a sense of a sense of we you know, is actually something terribly important.
0: I think what you're saying is incredibly important and I have so much respect. And it resonates with me. Everything you said... The only difference is I don't call that nationalists. Okay. You know, maybe I call it patriots. Someone who is very fond of and understandably embraces his or her own culture. That's George Orwell's did, that's
1: George Orwell's <laughs> distinction. Yes. <laughs> I,
0: but I think it's important and I honestly think patriotism is so important it shouldn't be left to nationalists i think faith is far too important to leave to the religious i also <laughs> I think <agree> with that <laughs> i also think politics is way too important to leave it to solely career politicians and also I think technology is way too important to leave to tech companies. Yeah. So there are all these issues that I think liberals, left, progressives need to be more involved in. We haven't thought carefully enough about patriotism, why it's so important, this sense of belonging and and I and I find that incredibly important. But my point is you can have very strong local attachments and at the same time be a citizen of the world. There's no contradiction there. And actually, all the studies show that people who see themselves as global souls, they do have strong local attachments. It is this nationalistic discourse that tells us, no, it's not possible. You have to choose either this or that.
1: Do do you worry that the globalised sympathy is something that can get alighted with a sort of multinational... A globalized finance system yeah. that actually sort of ignores difference and seeks to treat you know everywhere as just just a potential market you know people are people can move all over the world not because they want sympathy with different sorts of places but because this part needs cheaper workers, this place yeah. needs cheaper workers so my anxiety Though I entirely sympathise, I, I want that. I've yeah. got. I want that. I mean, I am partly that, but I also just worry that the two things can come together, and I just wonder whether well you're also on the side of the baddies too. <laughs> no,
0: but I, I appreciate that. You know, you, you share your concerns with me. But here's what I think, and then tell me what you think, yeah. please. I think we need to talk about inequality. We need to talk about inequalities. And this is not a side issue. It's not a footnote. It's not a secondary issue. It should be at the center of all of our debates. And what we have, the model we have, is just unacceptable. This has been going on for decades and decades. The growing inequality, whether you call it 1% versus 99%, people phrase it in different ways. I, I don't care about those linguistic details. What I do care about is growing inequality. It's not only economic inequality, although that is a huge part of it, especially stagnation in median uh, income household, you know, household income. That is a big part of this. But in addition, I think we need to talk about anxiety. I'm a very anxious person. I understand, you know, anxiety to me is very real. So when people talk about economic anxiety, political anxiety, cultural anxiety, or demographic anxiety, I don't brush it aside. Now, when you look at the places where, for instance, Trump was elected, out of the 22 states, the 21 states where he got the most votes are places in America that are more prone to automation. What does that mean? That means maybe right now you have a job, but if you have the anxiety that in the next 10 years or 20 years, you won't have that job anymore, that economic anxiety matters. Or if you have an anxiety that your children might not have equal job opportunities, that anxiety matters. So we need to talk about all of that. Equally, I think we need to talk about this growing uh, inequality between the countryside and the urban centers. And this is happening in the UK, it's happening in Austria, in every... Everywhere across Europe, Turkey, yes. huge gap. So the centres are becoming, uh, I mean, cities are becoming magnets. They're attracting all kinds of capital, creativity, but the countryside more and more left behind. We cannot underestimate the impact of that. And secondly, demographics is changing. And that too is creating a lot of anxiety. And I can't belittle that. So I want to be able to talk about that. But also, we need to talk about technology, and how we over romanticize technology for a long time, thinking it was going to bring democracy everywhere. But the opposite also happened. So there's a dark side to technology and the digital world that we need to talk about. All I'm saying is, there are lots of factors that we need to take Take into consideration, and it matters when people feel left behind. But just to give you one example, we had a huge, massive financial crisis, and we're acting as if it really didn't matter. It did matter. And many people rightly think that the people who are responsible for the crisis have really not paid the real price, whereas people who had nothing to do with the financial crisis have been suffering under programs of austerity. This is a reality. There's a group of German researchers, political scientists, they did a study evaluating 800 political elections, going all the way back to late 19th century. And they found this pattern, which I find very alarming. After every economic crisis, we have seen an increase in nationalism. We have seen an increase in tribalism. And after every uh, financial crisis, the next political environment has favored the rise of the far right. We cannot think that it's not happening in our time.
1: Is, is there a, is there a, i agree with 95% of okay, what Okay tell me the 95% 5%. Well i have um i have a sort of mixed view about the reaction to financial crises which um which i completely agree with you um and uh, that that is the issue that is yeah. the issue but part of me thinks that what happens in um when your world falls apart is that you seek to retrench into family community church whatever it is some some sense of um, those things that are not the state that will that will support you that will care for you when you're when power is is distant yeah. um, i mean i'm a you know am I'm, I'm quite passionately believe in leaving the european union
0: right. um, <laughs> I and, mean i'm sorry about that yeah, I, I i sort,
1: <laughs> I of, I, mean I sort <laughs> of i sort of guess but for me it's partly to do with i mean one of the principal reasons is something about power being distant um, like if you 're employed in a you know an amazon warehouse and you 're employed from some great distance away or your uh, your political um, th- those people who make political decisions over you are are increasingly far away and for those people that you know are uh, d- just what they know is is the twenty miles around where they 've lived yeah. that is a sort of heteronomy that's yeah. that 's an imposition and it 's actually you know it's your family. It's your community. It's the we. Those are the people you fall back upon. Now, the pathological expression of that is indeed racism, nationalism, yeah. all those Xenophobia. wicked things. All of that. All of that wicked stuff. But that is also a a sort of pathological side mm-hmm. to a sense of needing to re-establish those you trust and we and care for yeah. when you've been broken.
0: Absolutely. We need to talk about neoliberalism, right? Yes, and exactly it this goes right. decades and decades back. And we need to talk about greed. I think that's the right word for it. Because taking those they call it market principle and then they apply it to health to education, social services, to all areas of social life, to all areas of human relationships, guided, dominated, more than guided, dominated by their market principles, I find that unacceptable. And that just creates more and more inequality. But this is where maybe I slightly differ from you. I think populism is the fake answer to some very real problems. The problems are real, and we cannot pretend the problems do not exist. But I am saying populism is not going to solve it It's going to make it worse. We've seen a taste of that in Turkey, in Hungary, in Poland, in Venezuela, in Brazil, country after country. Populists, although they call themselves, they love to call themselves Democrats. Marine Le Pen says, I'm a Democrat. Steve Bannon says, I love democracy. What they mean is they like the ballot box, but they do not like democracy In the real sense, because in the real sense, a democracy requires more than a ballot box. It requires checks and balances, a rule of law, definitely a free diverse media, independent academia, women's rights, LGBTQ rights. You know, with all these plural components, a democracy can survive. Populism is anti-pluralistic. By nature. They love to romanticize people, but they always divide people into two camps. Just, just remember what yeah, Nigel Farage said. Yeah. I, I'm so sorry to no, interrupt. No, After the Brexit vote, he said the real people, the decent people in this country have spoken. Well, that then I want to ask the question, who are the unreal people? Yes, who exactly are the people right. who are not decent? Exactly, exactly so right. the moment you start dividing people like that, that is dangerous.
1: Once again, I agree with a lot of what you say, uh, my, there's a little bit of me that gets nervous when people say, it, not that it's not true, because it is true, but I still get nervous when people say democracy is not about the ballot box, because it can be a way, you know, it can be a way of downplaying yeah. the power that ordinary people have to affect Um, the ballot box is the way through which ordinary people have power to to change the world in which they live so I know that I know you're not
0: but please don't get me wrong I'm by by any means I'm not underestimating the importance of the ballot box but we need to be aware of a rising populist authoritarianism populist nationalism in country after country I am saying ballot box is essential and I will always respect the outcome. But in addition, we have to also care for and maybe, you know, understand the value of other things to support the process. Why do I say that? Because I come from Turkey, we had a ballot box in Turkey, we had fairly regular elections. And we ended up with majoritarianism, which quickly evolved into authoritarianism, because we've lost all the other checks and balances and free media and rule of law, etc. So when journalism is under attack, there's a part of me that really is scared. When independent institutions are under attack, when checks and balances are damaged, there's a part of me that's scared because I have seen where that leads to.
1: And you don't think that um, if we're not careful, even though I agree with all of that, if we're not careful, the checks and balances of all the various ways in which we hedge Mm -hmm. the the ballot box, as it were, um, to maintain diversity. I'm just a bit worried that it, it it would be a little bit too easy for those institutions to be impregnated with a more conservative philosophy mm-hmm. that is not itself subject to the to the to the power of um democratic scrutiny mm-hmm. you know that's that's my worry about all of this sort of stuff if we say we need all these different sorts of checks and balances i just worry that Um, especially with the overwhelming power of international finance that actually, Mm -hmm. you know, those checks and balances can be ways in which we're actually negating Mm-hmm. The sort of power that ordinary people have. But I think we sort of agree about yes. a, a lot of And I think
0: that. we do agree that neoliberalism actually destroys the very essence of democracy, doesn't it? Because it doesn't allow, you know, it doesn't leave any room, any space for those checks and balances with that ultimate greed. So I think we do agree. We on definitely that. we
1: definitely agree about that. <laughs> we def- but I'm interested. So we've talked we've talked we've agreed and we've disagreed about this. But what I'm interested in is you know we've described a little bit about the world in which we live and its mm-hmm. challenges and so forth mm-hmm. the novelist mm-hmm. in this world now we've said a little bit about the novelist has a sort of commitment to democracy built into the sort of very work you're doing yeah. giving giving all these different people a voice and and your particular uh, concern is always to give voice to the voiceless
0: yes and perhaps it's It's a bit paradoxical, but maybe in an age in which this age of so-called post-truth, when truth is being eroded and attacked from many, many sides, maybe fiction writers have to defend truth more loudly, more boldly. Now, that's
1: really interesting. In the public
0: space. Why do I say that? Because I think at the heart of our work is empathy, is the desire to put yourself in the shoes of another person and try to see, how would I feel had I been born in in a different part of this country, at a different moment in history? How would be my story? How how would it be like? So that's a very simple question, but I think it's a very fundamental question. It's an intellectual exercise, but maybe even a spiritual exercise that pushes you further and asks you to leave your sense of self and identity and to have a cognitive flexibility to try to see the truth from different angles. That is incredibly important.
1: Uh, Absolutely right. But we are also living, this is uh, in in an age where that is more empiricist more about evidence-based this that and the other where that sort of talk about um you know fiction being a way to truth um which i completely agree with and you know um there will be those perhaps listening to this who go that sounds a little bit dodgy <laughs> you know there's a sort of science scientism that um uh techno uh, um love of technology and science and and a certain sort of picture of rationality mm-hmm. which just won't buy that idea yeah. that fiction can give you truth.
0: Well, I think we have this data fetishism. Uh, unfortunately, particularly in my field, political science is dominated. I'm not underestimating the importance of quantitative data. Of course, it's very important, but it's not enough to understand the world. Maybe we need to ask ourselves just one crucial question. How is it possible that so many smart people experts have got so many things wrong i'm talking about financial crisis euro crisis the arab spring you remember how it was what what people wrote about the arab spring at the beginning yeah. and what it turned into it
1: was, it was supposed to be the great liberation absolutely
0: wasn't it? and then uh, think about Not the, idlib yep exactly and then think about brexit vote or trump vote how is it possible that experts got so many things wrong not because they don't know their fields. I think part of the answer is because we don't have enough conversations across disciplines. We don't connect the dots. Everybody's so atomized, isolated. Everyone knows their own field, but is so isolated from knowledge that comes from another field. And that's not good. So I think I make a distinction between information, knowledge, and wisdom. I think they're completely separate things. We live in an age in which we have... A lot of information about anything and everything. But we have less knowledge and even less wisdom. And we need to change the ratio. We definitely do not need this much information. We can't process it. After a while it just you know we just scroll it up and down, but we're really not thinking, engaging. So we don't we can't process this much information. We need to lessen that, but we need to increase knowledge. And that requires to read books, that requires to read longer articles in the Depth analysis, but it requires to slow down, to go within, not be in the company of others for a moment, you know. And then wisdom is something else altogether. In my opinion, wisdom requires bringing the mind and the heart together. It requires emotional intelligence, and that's where we need stories and empathy and the art of storytelling. So maybe part of my work is an attempt to try to. increase maybe? How can I increase knowledge? There's a part of me that finds that question very important and there's a part of me that seeks wisdom.
1: Like your grandmother?
0: Like my grandmother, yeah.
1: i talk about your latest book. Your latest book has extraordinary... Um, uh, idea to it which is you know uh you die and then for 10 minutes 38 seconds afterwards you somehow replay Mm -hmm. your life story and it's a way of telling the you've used this as a way of telling the story of a a sex worker in in istanbul who ends up in this horrendous graveyard um for those which is a real place Yeah. I, I, and there's there's a place like that and I don't know if you, you know it but there's a place like that on the south bank, yes, it's right not it. dissimilar to it yeah. The yeah. I know it's the prostitute's graveyard but it probably has a more technical yeah. uh, or a better better description than that but it was yes. it reminded me of that place on the south bank.
0: Absolutely and there are outcasts in every society, the graveyard that we're talking about in Istanbul is a real place uh, as you said and unlike any other graveyard there are no tombstones there, there are no names or surnames, only numbers. So it's a place where actual people are turned into numbers. And when those numbers are erased because of the wind or the rain or the snow, there's nothing left, you know, of a whole lifetime. And I think a part of me wanted to at least take one of those numbers and try to reverse the process, give it a name, a surname, an individuality, a story. This is a place when when you do research there are lots of lgbt members who have been um, buried there because they have been shunned by their families there are lots of aids People have died of AIDS, uh, again, throughout 1980s and 90s. Again, they have been rejected by their families, and they've been buried in the cemetery, which in Turkish we call the cemetery of the companionless, as if these people had no companions in life, which is not true, of course. And then it's a place where you'll find many abandoned babies... Lots of suicides who have been rejected by their families. Also refugees. We do read about refugees who have been drowned in the Aegean or the Black Sea but where are they buried all these hundreds and hundreds of people they're buried in the cemetery of the companions. so it's a very strange place in which an Afghan refugee or a Syrian refugee might be buried next to a Turkish or a Kurdish sex worker next to an abundant baby and I, I wanted to I did visit this place in the past many times and as I said I wanted to at least tell the story of one of the people who are buried there.
1: It's a beautiful story and extremely powerful. Um maybe I'll talk about men for a minute. Well, of, course, <laughs> of course. Um The men in the men in um your latest novel, that they're either sort of rotters or they're dead. <laughs> 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 Is that fair?
0: No, that's not fair. Is it not? Okay. That is not fair. I mean, (laughs) mean, the love
1: of her life dies quite young. There's a lot of really horrible men in it.
0: Yeah, but the love of her life is, I think, you know, he really loves her. And um, he's a very nice soul, although he's flawed, like all of us are. And then there's a friend of us, Sinan, who is also a very gentle soul and a very kind man. But then I do question masculinity. And when I say masculinity, of course, it has to be plural. Masculinities, there are different forms of masculinity. And I've always said, as a feminist, of course, patriarchy makes women unhappy, but it also makes men unhappy, particularly men who are not comfortable with the hegemonic description of masculinity that's imposed on them, you know, like a straitjacket. If for whatever reason, you could be a young gay man, you could be someone who just doesn't conform to the given rules and patterns of behavior, then your life will be very, very difficult in a country like Turkey, Middle East, but across the world. And sometimes women do take also part in the oppression of such young men. So I do a- always want to be able to defend the rights of men, especially coming from dis- disempowered, disadvantaged backgrounds. And I think feminism needs to reach out. You know, we need to be able to invite men on board and and fight against patriarchy together.
1: And the way in which patriarchy messes up men as well. Definitely. I mean, that's I can I can completely see that. And imagine. Becoming a mum yeah. and a mum also of a, a boy. Am I might understand you have a boy and a, a girl and so True. forth. I imagine that's something that yeah. that is sort of like you know, that's revived the importance of that.
0: It did indeed. And actually, one of my earlier novels, The Forty Rules of Love, I wrote about Rumi and Shems of Tabriz and the spiritual bond between them. Again, I had to think about men, manhood, masculinity. These were very extraordinary people given the time they lived in, 13th century. So that book is more mystical. But uh, I wrote it at the time when my son had just been born and, and it had to push me. And I I think I felt a little, bit, a little bit more compelled to think more carefully about masculinity. So I am a humanist in my heart. Uh, and to me, it's very important to understand equality, dignity for everyone, regardless of any kinds of boundaries, national, race, class or gender. That is, I think, what all of my thoughts and, and work revolves around, that kind of humanism
1: but it also what I, what i like about your work is it's not just covered by that i mean part of it is bringing down walls mm-hmm. but and but it isn't a facing mm-hmm. The sense of place, which is important to me, so it's it's yeah. not a sort of um you, you can bring down walls, but they're sort of walls of division. Yeah. You still maintain a yeah. very strong sense of the particular and of place, and that's why I respond so positively to them. I, I so
0: appreciate <laughs> and and you know what we've we've talked about holocaust, we talk about genocide, very difficult subjects. When I do read the people who have survived these worst. darkest atrocities in human history when you read their memoirs almost all of them say something similar which I think has important consequences for today too they're asking this question how is it possible that such horrible things have happened not because too many people are bad or evil there are some evil people but relatively speaking their numbers are small most people are between good and bad you know struggling all of us But still bad things happen, horrific things happen. How is it possible? So these survivors are saying maybe the opposite of goodness is not necessarily badness. Maybe the opposite of kindness is not necessarily evil. So they're saying the opposite of goodness is in fact numbness is the moment we become numb, desensitized, indifferent to each other's stories, to each other's pain and struggles and sorrow. It's a bit
1: like Hannah Arendt, isn't it? It is
0: very much like Hannah Arendt. And I think this is what she was warning us about. And this is why she wanted, I think, us to become more engaged citizens, more committed citizens in the public space. And I think her warning is very true.
1: I'm a priest so I yes. I always I'm always interested in in people's uh relationship to the sort of broadly broader religious sort of mm-hmm. culture you strike me as one of those people who perhaps describe themselves as spiritual but not religious would that be does that yeah. is that is that about right
0: That is about right also you mentioned Hannah and uh, when she was talking about Walter Benjamin she called him a failed mystic I think <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm a failed mystic Okay yes I can see that <laughs> you <know>? my failed <laughs> Because I have too much doubt. I see. And I love my doubts, so I'm not, I'm not going to abandon them. But I, as I said, I think I like the dance of faith and doubt. And I think they should keep talking to each other. My problem with people who are very religious is that they want to get rid of doubt and only want to embrace faith. But faith without doubt is a dogma. My problem with people who are very strictly atheists is that they want to get rid of faith. Um, and only cling to doubt, but as I said, I think faith is important. You see, so, I think the opposite
1: yeah. of faith isn't doubt. I think the opposite of faith is certainty. Yeah. yeah so I, I think I, I think certainty saying. is is yeah. much more of a challenge to faith than doubt. Yeah. I don't have any problem with doubt. Doubt is yeah. doubt is a part of my daily life continuously. Yeah. And so, forth. Yeah. certainty. I think that's a great challenge. But to I think faith.
0: you're closer to mystics. <laughs> well, that might that might be right.
1: That that might be right, yeah. and so forth. Yeah. But in, and is your is your mist is is your sort of mysticism? Yeah. You know, you say it's failed. I'm not sure, but <laughs> whatever. Does it does it have a particular shape? Is it Eastern or Western? Or
0: I, you know, I think I've always liked mystics who are a little bit of misfits who could not exactly fit. Rumi anywhere. is the... Rumi, uh, but also. If you, there's a part of me that really thinks, if you bring these people together, like Meister Eckhart, Teresa de Avila, yeah. Isaac Luria, Abu Lafia, Rumi, Rabia, I think they would have a very nice supper together. <laughs> I think they would break bread together, you know, and they would understand each other because their quest was very similar. And it's fascinating. These people have lived in very different centuries and places, but they really had the same search, the same longing. Religions, organized religions, are very much obsessed with us versus them and this idea that us, people who think like us, are closer to truth, closer to God, that is not close to my heart. But I think spirituality, I find it much more individual inner oriented and everybody's journey is unique. You might start your journey as a Buddhist, end up as a Christian mystic or the other way around. And I will respect either way. Who am I to judge you? You know, because everybody's journey, just like our fingerprints, is very, very unique. So there's a part of me that respects spiritual longings and journeys. And like you, I don't like certainty.
1: We agree on not liking certainty, both the same, but I suspect the difference between us is you're keener on difference and I'm keener on sameness so mm-hmm. when I think about your dinner party yes. with all these mystics, yes. I see them arguing <laughs> <laughs> I see them arguing I mean, they might not be, they might not be killing each other, because they're all good people by the way <laughs> but I see them as fundamentally disagreeing. But it's not
0: a bad thing, we need to argue, we need to disagree and this is how we make progress I think the other is quite scary when we start repetition sameness ideology of sameness particularly when it's imposed from above yes. top down i find that very dangerous
1: this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation mm-hmm. i'm sure we could talk for hours and hours, hours and hours, and
0: hours. <laughs> <laughs> hours, and hours. Yeah. it was a delight
1: to meet you for thank me you very well. much for coming Indeed. on confessions. thank you for having
0: me really thank, thank you. you so much
1: thank you for listening to this episode of confessions with me giles fraser If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing and I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com.